This is FSRN, the weekly edition. I'm Nell Abram. Coming up on this week's show, U.S. forces dropped a so-called mother of all bombs in Afghanistan. President Trump says he's given the military total authorization. The GEO Group gets a new federal contract for immigration detention while facing a class action lawsuit for forced labor. And families of Mexico's disappeared are leading search efforts to uncover clandestine mass graves. Those stories and more on FSRN's Weekly Edition. In eastern Afghanistan Thursday evening, U.S. forces deployed the most powerful conventional munition in the country's arsenal, second only to a nuclear bomb, targeting a series of caves used by ISIS fighters in the Achin district of Nangahar province. 36 people linked to ISIS reportedly died in the strike. So far, there's no word on any civilian casualties caused by the bomb's potentially one-mile radius blast. The GBU-43B is a 30-foot-long, more than 21,000-pound massive ordnance air blast bomb, or MOAB. It's also known as the mother of all bombs and had never before been used in combat. It's unclear if President Trump was aware of the decision to drop the enormous bomb before it happened. After a White House event Thursday, a pool reporter asked Trump, Did you authorize it, sir? Uh, everybody knows exactly what happened, so, and what I do is I authorize my military. We have the greatest military in the world, and they've done a job as usual, so we have given them total authorization. The U.S.-led fight against ISIS spans multiple countries. In Iraq, the offensive in Mosul continues, and in Syria, ground forces are closing in on the last of ISIS's major urban strongholds, the city of Raqqa. If ISIS loses its territorial claims across Iraq and Syria, what comes after military action? To human rights activists, the answer is a war crimes tribunal. FSRN's Patricia Noonan has more from New York. Nadia Murad is from Iraq's minority Yazidi population. The 23-year-old woman was held by ISIS as a sex slave before escaping and eventually making it to Germany. She recently addressed the United Nations for the second time. After the horror of what she and other Yazidi women have gone through, she finds the international community's failure to take legal action against ISIS almost incomprehensible. Why it is taking so long? I cannot understand why you are letting ISIS get away with, with it. Or what more you need to hear before you, you will act. Murad now serves as a UN goodwill ambassador for victims of human trafficking. She also has a high-profile human rights attorney, Amal Clooney, who has taken on the Yazidi cause. Human rights advocates say the so-called Islamic State's efforts to wipe out the entire Yazidi population merit a legal charge of genocide. But conducting a war crimes tribunal requires evidence, and gathering evidence requires an investigation. ISIS holds chunks of territory across both Syria and Iraq. Because Iraq is a friendly government and Syria is not, Clooney is among those calling on Iraq to allow UN investigators to gather forensic evidence of war crimes committed by ISIS within its borders. 
Amal Clooney speaking at the UN. The Iraqi government is aware that a one-page letter to the Security Council requesting the investigation would be sufficient to trigger a vote on the resolution. But months have passed, deadlines set by the UK have come and gone, and the Iraqi government has declined to send such a letter. So there has been no vote, no resolution, and no investigation. Of course, war crimes carried out within the Syrian conflict are not limited to those committed by ISIS. Last week, the U.S. carried out airstrikes on a Syrian airbase after it said the Syrian government used chemical weapons on civilians. Since then, President Donald Trump has called Syrian President Bashar al-Assad a butcher and has made repeated references to Syrian war crimes. But Wednesday, the U.N. Security Council failed to pass a resolution condemning the attack and calling for an international probe of the incident after Russia vetoed the measure. Balkis Jara is with the International Justice Program of Human Rights Watch. She points out that the UN General Assembly did pass a resolution in December setting up an investigative mechanism for Syria, which, like what Clooney wants in Iraq, would allow investigators to gather evidence of atrocities allegedly carried out by Syrian authorities for potential use in a war crimes tribunal. At the moment, states are committing funding to the mechanism so that it can begin its work. To our knowledge, despite having voted in favor of the resolution to establish this mechanism, the United States has not committed any funding to date. Rights workers say Iraq may be dragging its heels on allowing the UN to investigate ISIS within its borders, because it fears some of its own forces could be found to have committed atrocities. Meanwhile, last week's U.S. airstrikes on Syria marked such a sudden reversal of the Trump administration's stated policy on President Assad, whether the White House is serious about pursuing war crimes charges remains entirely unclear. Patricia Noonan, FSRN, New York. Attorney General Jeff Sessions traveled to the U.S.-Mexico border in Arizona this week where he issued new guidelines for ramped-up immigration enforcement. He ordered additional charges be brought against undocumented immigrants when possible and directed that repeat entrants be charged with felony crimes. The new guidelines also call for the prosecution of anyone involved in transporting or harboring undocumented immigrants. While the stated goal aims to target people smugglers, members of mixed-status families fear that provision could be used against them, for things as basic as living together or for traveling in the same car. Private prison operators are already cashing in on the Trump-era crackdown. The GEO Group announced Thursday it has secured a contract with the government to build a new 1,000-bed, $110 million immigration prison in Conroe, Texas, just north of Houston. The contract comes as the GEO Group faces a class-action lawsuit in Colorado, where at least 60,000 immigrants accuse the for-profit detention company of forcing them to work for little or no pay under threat of solitary confinement. Hannah Lee Myers reports. I'm outside the ICE detention center in Aurora, Colorado, also called the Denver Contract Detention Facility. The front of the building is painted a bright blue. It looks very new. 
not at all like a lot of the older government-run facilities. One would assume such a large, kempt-looking institution would employ a large staff to keep it so well-maintained. But as it turns out, the detainees themselves may be a non-consenting work crew forced to keep this place spick and span. In March, a federal judge approved class action status for a lawsuit alleging at least 60,000 past and present detainees held at the Aurora ICE facility were forced to do janitorial work, clerical work, landscaping, and other jobs for free or a dollar a day. Those who refuse are threatened with solitary confinement, a threat immigrants like this former anonymous detainee say carries a lot of weight. It was like hell on earth. If you're not strong enough, you will want to die in there. The case argues threatening solitary confinement violates the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which prohibits forced labor under threat of harm. It's the first class action lawsuit in U.S. history obligating a private prison to fight claims of forced labor in court. The Aurora facility is one of more than 140 detention centers operated by Geo Group, the second largest private prison operator, incarcerating more immigrants than any other company worldwide. In a statement, Geo Group says they strongly refute the forced labor allegations and intend to continue to vigorously defend the company against the claims. Since the case was filed in 2014, Geo Group has insisted their so-called volunteer work program policies are set by the federal government, but judges aren't convinced. Geo filed a motion like that in this case, and the judge said, no, if you are in fact doing all the things alleged in the complaint, that could violate the Trafficking Victims Protection Act prohibition on forced labor. Nina DeSalvo, executive director of Towards Justice and one of the attorneys behind the lawsuit, says the case's new class action status gives a frightened and marginalized community the power to fight such a powerful organization. These are practices that GEO has engaged in for a very long time, but they have yet to be challenged in the courts, which I think speaks mostly to the difficulties that vulnerable populations have accessing the courts in the absence of the class action mechanism. The lawsuit claims GEO Group is unlawfully boosting profits by forcing detainees to do work for which they would otherwise have to hire employees. Since President Trump took office, GEO stock has risen 98 percent. Just weeks after Attorney General Jeff Sessions was sworn in, he reversed plans to phase out federal use of private prisons. And this week, during a border visit in Arizona, Sessions announced plans to hire 125 more immigration judges as part of the administration's commitment to increased immigration enforcement. For those that continue to seek improper and illegal entry into this country, be forewarned. This is a new era. This is the Trump era. The lawlessness, the abdication of duty to enforce our laws and the catch and release policies of the past are over. For years, the public has regularly protested outside the Aurora ICE facility and many others nationwide, decrying the unjust treatment of immigrants jailed within. 
This week, more than 750 immigrants held in another geo-group detention center, this one in Washington state, went on hunger strike. Some also called for a work stoppage. Like the Aurora facility, detainees at the Northwest Detention Center are also forced to work for a dollar a day. For the plaintiffs in the Aurora forced labor lawsuit, the class action certification is clearly a legal leap forward, but the case is likely to drag through the courts for years, and most of the detainees bringing the case may never see their day in court. Yet immigrants and their advocates are hopeful that protests and legal actions will prove to be powerful weapons in the fight against the Trump administration's policies that are leaning increasingly towards mass deportations. Hanley Myers, FSRN, Denver. You're listening to FSRN Free Speech Radio News, independent, non-commercial media. To find out how you can support FSRN, visit our website, fsrn.org. Anti-refugee sentiment coming from the top office of the world's most powerful country seems to have emboldened nationalist tendencies elsewhere. Human rights groups in India are concerned about the government's plan to deport Rohingya refugees. Thousands of Rohingya Muslims fleeing persecution in Myanmar are living in exile in India, but Hindu nationalist groups have launched a campaign to drive them out of the country. Bismila Gilani reports. Tens of thousands of Rohingya Muslims in India who fled violence in their home country of Myanmar are now afraid they will be sent back. Officials in India's Ministry of External Affairs revealed last week that the government is working on a plan to identify and deport the Rohingya refugees. The reports came after some Hindu nationalist groups intensified their protest against Rohingya Muslims living in India. The Hindu groups view them as a threat to national security and have been demanding their expulsion. The report sent shockwaves through the Rohingya community and human rights circles. Raghu Menon is media and advocacy manager at Amnesty International India. This came as a shock for us, uh, you know, because apart from it being uh, a violation of India's commitment under international human rights law and refugee law, it would also uh, go against the grain of humanitarian uh, philosophy and policy that India has always applied to people uh, fleeing persecution. Rohingya refugees began arriving in India in 2012 after violent attacks against them broke out in neighboring Myanmar. The government, then led by Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, allowed them to stay in the country, despite opposition from Hindu nationalist groups. But since the Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, came to power in 2014, the clamor to send them back has grown louder. Violence against the Rohingya in Myanmar resumed last fall, with entire villages in the western Rakhine state erased by fire allegedly at the hands of the military. But nonetheless, earlier this week, a traders' group in the northern city of Jammu even threatened to start killing the Rohingyas if the government fails to move them out within a month. However, some political parties and Muslim organizations have come out in support of the Rohingyas, urging the government to immediately roll back the deportation plan. Bismillah Gilani, Free Speech Radio News, New Delhi. In Myanmar, violence against the Rohingya Muslim minority hasn't let up, despite profound political changes. A year ago, 
Citizens in the country also referred to as Burma saw their first civilian president take office in a government led by pro-democracy icon Aung San Suu Kyi. This major step toward a representative government came after more than half a century of brutal military rule. While for decades any talk of human rights was banned, the country is now seeing hundreds of civil society organizations mushroom. But human rights advocates say not everyone is benefiting from the new freedoms in the country. FSRN's Lena Odgard reports. In North Okolaba, a suburb of Yangon, people are gathering in a large tin shack. Music is blasting from two speakers. It's the theme song of Akaya, a local women's organization that works to promote equality and rights for women throughout Myanmar. Today the organization is hosting a play that aims to shed light on sexual assault on minors. In the play, a young girl is raped by an ice cream salesman. The story is based on an attack that took place in the area a few years ago. Papa Nantwe, program coordinator of the Awareness Theatre, estimates that only about one in three rape cases are reported. And in half of these cases, the girl is under 16. We believe the three in one survivors are reported to the police. Nantwe explains that in much of Myanmar, the social construct around rape and even domestic abuse does not view these assaults as violence. And most people, both men and women, don't consider sexual assault and domestic abuse violations of women's rights. She illustrated her point after the play by asking if anyone in the audience knew of cases of violence against women and girls. Is there any violence in this village? She said no. Uh, is husband, uh, the husband beat the wives? So yes. Oh, they don't know what is the violence. So For 50 years, while Myanmar was ruled by an oppressive military junta, any call for human rights could lead to years in prison. This started to change in 2011 when the military government introduced a series of reforms that enabled activists and civil society groups to form and work openly. Hundreds of new organizations sprung up. At the same time, restrictions on access to information were eased and in less than five years, internet penetration has gone from less than 1% to 20%. A year ago, after a landslide electoral victory, the National League for Democracy, the so-called NLD, took office. Led by the internationally praised Nobel Peace Laureate Aung San Suu Kyi, the victory was hailed as the official beginning of a new democratic era for Myanmar. In another Yangon suburb, LGBT rights activist Tin Koko Ko works at an office promoting awareness about HIV and AIDS. During the lead-up to the landmark election, Tin Koko and his community campaigned to get the NLD elected. They expected that the new government would cancel some of Myanmar's repressive laws targeting the LGBT community. While they can now talk openly about homosexuality, they are still waiting for meaningful legislative reforms. For us, it means we can work more freely and it's easier to cooperate with other organizations. 
But homosexuality is still not widely accepted, and even the new government and high-level officials say that many issues are more important than LGBT rights. Officially, engaging in homosexual acts is illegal in Myanmar, according to an old law dating back to the British colonial times. It is rarely enforced, but according to Koko, police officers and authorities use it as an excuse to harass, blackmail and abuse members of the LGBT community. We hoped for and expected more rights with this new government. We worked actively to get them elected and voted for them ourselves. But we are not satisfied. And 12 months later, activists like Coco are starting to wonder how long they must wait to see noteworthy changes in policies and laws. Tetsuai Win plays with his four-year-old daughter. He has been a human rights activist since 2007 and was a staunch supporter of the NLD. So, we voted this government because we believe that they can bring the change for the, for the country. They, we believe that they are the government of the people. But even like almost one year now, there's not really, you know, like tangible change that we can see yet. It's, you know, many people have started, you know, getting talked. Echoing a number of international human rights organizations, Sui Win criticizes the government and especially Su Chi, locally referred to as the lady, for continuing the oppression of minorities, especially the Muslim Rohingyas. They don't really listen to the people. They said like they, they are work for people. But uh, in reality, the lady, like, she keep quiet for the issues in Rohingya. In April, Myanmar will host a small by-election. Shui Win predicts another landslide victory for NLD, mainly because there is no real opposition. He fears the party's huge support will make them even more reluctant to move forward with democratic reforms, and that Myanmar's new democracy is not truly a democracy for all its people. Lina Odgor for FSRN in Yangon, Myanmar. In Mexico, families of the disappeared have been leading efforts to uncover mass graves. More than 300 bodies have been unearthed in recent weeks, and along with the bodies come hints at the answers thousands of families have been seeking since loved ones went missing in the decade of militarized drug war in the country. The graves also expose the tense relationship between the families of the victims and the authorities tasked with solving crimes. Clayton Kahn reports from the Mexican capital. A backhoe churns up the loose soil of a clandestine grave in the rural Mexican town of Jojutla in the south-central state of Morelos. Thus far, 64 bodies have been found at the site with signs that many more may still be buried beneath. Jojutla is only one of the most recent clandestine grave sites uncovered by families of Mexico's estimated 30,000 disappeared. Teresa Alvarado, who has been searching for her disappeared sister Minerva for the last 11 years, has participated in several of these exhumations. She says over the last decade, little has changed in terms of the authorities' attitude and participation. The authorities make it seem that they are communicating with each other and that they are searching but that is not the reality. 
No one is searching for our disappeared. Rather, we, the families, are the ones doing the investigations and producing information. Meanwhile, in the violence-stricken Gulf Coast state of Veracruz, a group of mothers have been digging for nine months at a site called Colinas de Santa Fe, considered to be the largest clandestine grave ever found in Mexico. These women have uncovered at least 250 corpses in a lot the size of two soccer fields. Lucia Diaz, who has been searching for her disappeared son, Luis, and who is the spokeswoman of a group of Veracruz families searching for their missing relatives, laments the overall inaction by both state and federal authorities in recuperating the remains of the victims and investigating the crimes. She says the families, through training from independent forensic anthropologists, have become their own crime scene investigators. We had these workshops for a whole month, and they taught us everything about the evidence, the handling of the evidence, handling of the corpses, of the, uh, the DNA, uh, everything that is required. Although state authorities in both Veracruz and Morelos are now participating in the excavations of the graves, human rights defenders and the families speculate the sites may contain victims of forced disappearances in extrajudicial murders. If that's the case, it means the chain of custody of evidence is in the hands of suspected perpetrators. The families that begin searches based on tips often do so at great personal risk, but many mothers of missing share a common sentiment that fear takes a back seat to the need for answers. Diaz and the families in Veracruz have been warned by the authorities to stop their participation, and in one occasion, unidentified men threatened them at gunpoint. Yet Diaz says the families are more compelled to provide justice to the victims than to buckle to threats. After you lose your right to freedom, you lose your right to life. And then, the ultimate, you lose your identity. It's not something that as mothers, we can put up for us. It's inconceivable. Last month, Mexico's president, Enrique Peña Nieto, acknowledged widespread irregularities when it comes to investigating disappearances and defending human rights in the country. Since the forced disappearance of the 43 Ayotzinapa students in 2014, the president has repeatedly pinned culpability on local-level corruption and the infiltration of organized crime groups into municipal and state-level authorities. Peña Nieto argues for stiffer laws and greater federal participation. Mexico Mexico requires strong institutions. Impunity hurts and violates society. It erodes our shared values and undermines peaceful coexistence among Mexicans. A country without strong laws and institutions is a vulnerable country. It is a nation unprotected against crime and violence. But pointing fingers at state and local police requires overlooking stacks of evidence linking federal police and military figures to crimes like enforced disappearances and extrajudicial killings. In a new report, the Human Rights Commission found conflicting numbers between the official and independent counts of clandestine graves unearthed. According to government numbers, 855 graves with the remains of 1,548 corpses have been uncovered since 2007. This number compares to the independent count of 1,143 graves with 3,230 bodies. As more graves are unearthed, more families of victims turn out to participate, prompting a glimmer of optimism in finding the disappeared and procuring justice for mothers such as Diaz. It may be hopeless at the moment, but we have to think ahead because things have to change. Of course, it's not going to happen overnight.
but it's going to take us time and effort and a lot of uh, fighting the authorities. But we need to, to make a change in Mexico because for us, it's, it's a matter of life or death. Mexico's Congress is currently debating legislation that would clearly spell out forced disappearance as a crime and provide greater resources to search for victims. At the same time, lawmakers are also debating a bill to increase the policing powers of Mexico's armed forces that have been denounced for human rights violations. Clayton Khan, FSRN, Mexico City. And that does it for this week's program. FSRN is supported by stations that air our show and by listeners like you. Shannon Young provides editorial services from Oaxaca, Mexico. Ro Packard provides technical support from WTJU in Charlottesville, Virginia. Music in today's show is by Croc via Gemendo.com. From Tampa, Florida, I'm Nell Abram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>